The last half of Ephesians 6.17 says, The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's the last of the clearly delineated parts of armor, and it's the one of these pieces of armor that is the most offensive in nature. I told you you could potentially use a shield offensively, but that's really not its primary purpose. And the same could be said in the opposite of a sword. A sword could be used as a defensive weapon to block blows coming at you, to push back the enemy in a defensive type of way, but its primary purpose is not defensive, it is offensive. So though a sword could be used as a weapon of self-defense, and you could block blows, I might have mentioned this last time as well, that certainly is not its intended purpose. You don't really want to have to keep catching blows on your sword. That's not wise. During my past life of my younger years, I did a lot of training with a lot of different weapons and things when I studied martial arts, and one of them was the sword. And one of the things you learn very quickly about the sword is it's nothing like the sword fights you see in movies or documentaries where they're constantly just banging their swords into each other. That's not the goal at all. The goal is to get past their sword. You're not trying to hit the other sword. You're trying to move past the other sword and hit the person. You're always cutting. One of the most famous of all the Japanese swordsmen, if not the most famous, Musashi, one of his rules was that you're always cutting. You're not blocking with the sword. You're not doing anything else with the sword. You're always cutting. The goal is to cut with the sword. And that's true in the spiritual realm as well. It is really not intended to be a defensive weapon to block blows coming at you. It's intended to attack the enemy, which is different from the rest of the armor because the rest of the armor is primarily, if not almost entirely, intended for a defensive purpose. But the sword is not. Though, as I said, it could be used defensively. It's not intended for that primarily. It's used to end threats. It's used to advance against the enemy. And as I said, though, like the shield of faith, you could use it to push forward to take ground. It's almost entirely offensive in its intent. And I'm probably going to talk about that throughout as we talk about the sword of the Spirit because it gives us a different perspective when we're thinking about how we use the Word of God. The Word of God is absolutely a defense to us, but we need to realize it's also something to attack what is wrong. It is also something that has to go on the offensive at times against evil, and that is a key part of its role, and it looks like it is the principal thing Paul was referencing when he's talking about it as one of these pieces. The sword here in Ephesians 6.17 is the Greek word makaira, M-A-C-H-A-I-R-A. Makaira is a word that can be used to refer to anything from a knife usually a long knife, to a full-size sword. It's the word used for the sword that the Roman soldiers carried, which I do think is probably what Paul had in mind here. That sword was about two feet long, and it was their primary weapon of offense. They did use, and you're going to see this throughout the ancient world, they used spears and other things, but the primary standard weapon that you always had, no matter what part of the army you were in, was a sword. It's possibly derived, this word makaira, from the Greek word makhe, which is M-A-C-H-E, that means a battle. So it's literally the weapon for a battle, because it's the word that comes from a battle. It's the thing that's used for a battle. It's the primary instrument of battle. And it was the primary instrument of battle in many periods of the ancient world. As I said a moment ago, there were certainly spears and other types of weapons, bludgeoning weapons that were used in ancient war, but the sword was almost always present, and the possibility of having a sword was a great benefit. You remember there was a time in Israel when the Philistines would not allow them to have sword smiths. They wouldn't allow them to have smiths. Those smiths weren't to make horseshoes or to make something metal for them to use in terms of agricultural implements or other things. 
They were smiths creating weapons, and the point behind it was they didn't want them to have swords. They didn't want them to be able to defend themselves, so they kept them from having any smiths, limited them from being able to have any smiths available to them. They could potentially forge weapons. So in the ancient world, yes, there were many other weapons, but the sword is the most common and standard weapon you'd see across all kinds of different cultures. They had different types of swords, of course, but it was one of the most standard weapons you would see in terms of a military type of a weapon. And it was the tool that was more necessary for carrying out offensive warfare, perhaps, than any other. Another Greek word that I want to touch on just quickly before I move on talking about the sword is the word here that is translated word in the phrase, the word of God. It's a little different than the word that is more commonly translated word in the Bible, as in John 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, that word, I'm going to be saying word a lot in these sentences, but that word is the Greek word logos, which is L-O-G-O-S. This word is the Greek word rhema, which is R-H-E-M-A. There is a difference between these two words, and it's kind of important because it tells you something about what this sword of the Spirit was about. If the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, I'm going to say it this way intentionally, you'll understand it in a moment, but if the purpose of the sword was to deliver a blow, it's not the entire Scripture you're delivering the blow with. The word logos, there's all kinds of ways that people pronounce it depending on the type of Greek you're talking about, Koine Greek or Classic Greek or so on, but I'm just going to pronounce it the way a lot of people are familiar with, logos. The word logos, when it's referring to the Bible, refers to the whole Bible or the whole Word of God. It's used generally to refer to something in a more comprehensive sense. It's not a statement of the Word of God. It's the Word of God, like we would say the Scripture or the Bible. If you said the Scripture or the Bible, unless you were talking about a specific Scripture, especially if you use the title the Bible, you aren't talking about one Scripture, are you? You're talking about the whole package. And Logos is often used in that kind of a way for the whole package of something, like a whole book, like the whole Bible. Whereas Rhema literally means a saying. And when it's used in the Bible, it is referring not to the whole of Scripture, but to a specific Scripture. So John 3.16 is what you'd call a Rhema. It's a statement in the Scripture. It isn't the whole Bible. It's a statement in the Bible. Now, you don't normally see this, of course, when you're reading an English translation, you don't know whether they're using logos or rhema or some other word. That's why, as I always say, it's why it's so valuable to look at the original language, even if you're just looking at a strong concordance to see what it is, because it'll tell you something. What it tells us about the sword of the Spirit is, it is intended to deliver blows that are very specific. And you notice, even when Jesus was in the wilderness, he didn't just say, thus saith the Scripture, the whole Scripture says such and such. He used specific statements of the Scripture to defend himself against Satan, to defend himself against those temptations. And whether you realize it or not, he was going on the offense against Satan when he did it. So he was both acting defensively and offensively, driving him back with those statements as well as defending himself from that temptation. But you notice Jesus just didn't say that doesn't agree with the Word of God as a whole. He used specific statements of the Scripture, and that's what this is talking about. So when you're talking about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, you might argue that the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, could be the Bible. What is meant to be conveyed by this is that it cuts with statements of the Scripture. Not every statement in the Scripture is going to be a defense for you in every situation. You can't just randomly quote Scripture, or you couldn't just say, the Bible tells me so, so to speak, without even knowing if the Bible tells you so. You need a specific statement. And again, I want you to think back to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. He used specific statements. He just didn't say some generalized, the Bible disagrees with you. I'm sorry, but the Bible disagrees with you when he was tempted, you know. He got specific. 
That is right at the heart of what the reason, I think, is for why Paul chose this word rhema. He's talking about a sword that is used very tactically, that when it strikes blows, it isn't just some big general thing like a big bludgeoning instrument coming at you. It's surgical. Very specific things that the Word of God says are things that can be used to attack the enemy, things that can be used to defend yourself, if you want to look at it in that context as well. So I do think it's important to see that difference because what Paul is inferring by using that word is that we're overcoming the enemy by specific statements of the Scripture. In other words, though the whole of Scripture is of value, it's the individual particular statements of the Scripture, the pieces and parts of it, that are targeted for specific purposes and strategically stated to defend against or attack an enemy that I think Paul has in mind here. That just makes perfect sense if you just think it through. There's times when you have something come against you, whether it's a temptation or it's some hard condition you're going through that you feel like you need an answer for. And it's not that you just take the Bible and say, this is the answer. It is the answer. But there are words in there. There are statements in the Bible that are specifically targeted to whatever that need is or that condition is or that challenge is. That's what Paul is getting at by using this word. He's saying it isn't just like taking the whole Word of God and swinging it at people. It's having enough tactical and technical skill of the Word of God that you have the right statements taken out of the Scripture to be able to defend yourself in different situations you might find yourself in. Does that make sense to you? Do you understand it or do I overcomplicate it? Okay. The other Greek word that's translated sword in the New Testament, it's worth talking about this for just a moment, even though this isn't the subject of this, it will help you to understand how these two words are used. The other main word translated sword in the New Testament is romphia, it's R-H-O-M-P-H-A-I-A. It's most often used to refer to a longer sword than that that's described by this Greek word makaira that's used here. Both of them, though, I believe, carry the same symbolic meaning when they're used in symbolic passages, that it's a picture of the Word of God. Machaira is used 29 times in the New Testament, and Rumphiah is only used seven times. The majority of the times that Machaira is used, it is describing a literal sword, like someone taking a sword or someone wearing a sword, rather than something symbolic. And in other words, it's not intended to express some kind of deeper symbolic meaning. But there are several examples of it that are unquestionably symbolic, just like this one here, where it says it's a sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That tells you it's not a literal sword that we're talking about. The clearest parallel to this statement in Ephesians 6.17 is in Hebrews 4.12-13, where it says the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit of the joints and the marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Those two verses should go hand in hand and shows you how the scripture looks at a sword in this way symbolically. That sword that's the word of God might be wielded directly by God himself. You'll see some passages talk about this. I'll give you in just a little bit. And in that sense, it would be in its spirit-inspired origin and application. It could be wielded by a minister or a saint of God, preaching or reading it. As long as its piercing and dividing purpose is being carried out, there's something that the sword of the Spirit does that is different than other swords. It is not just intended to kill. It's intended to divide. It's intended to separate. I don't mean to separate you from your friends, though it might do that. I don't mean to separate you from your family, though it could do that. But it is intended to separate. Notice that it's dividing asunder in Hebrews 4. It's intended to cut in order to separate. 
And the cutting that it does to separate is either positive or negative. The positive type of cutting it does to separate is to cut away sin, to separate you from sin. The negative way that it cuts is if you are holding on to your sin and will not let it remove that sin, it'll cut you away from God and from life eventually. So the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, can either be an instrument of deliverance or of damnation. It can be an instrument of salvation or judgment, depending upon your response to it. And you'll see that very significantly as we look at some of these passages in the Bible, especially in the book of Acts, where the preaching of the Word of God was compared to something that cut or pierced the people that were hearing it. And some of them, when it cut or pierced them, responded very positively to it, and it delivered them. Some of them responded very negatively to it. They rejected that feeling that they got when it cut at them, and it destroyed them. It brought damnation to them. Then you notice in Hebrews 4, it says that God's Word is quick. Anybody know what the word quick means? I don't mean looking it up in Merriam-Webster's dictionary because you're not going to get the right definition. The word that's translated quick here. When the Bible uses this word quick in this kind of a context, what do you think it means? Alive. The word that's translated quick here means something that's alive, it's living. So sometimes when you see the word quick in the Bible, in fact, quite often when you see the word quick in the Bible, it means alive. Isn't there an old Western movie called The Quick and the Dead? You know what that means. It was a play on words. If you're not quick drawing your gun, you're probably going to be dead. But it was also a play on words that they're alive and dead. If you're quick drawing your gun, you'll be the one that's alive at the end of the confrontation. Well, the word quick, when you see it in the Bible, quite often, and in this context, in Hebrews 4, means alive. So the Word of God is quick. It's not that it's quick in that it moves fast. It might move fast, but sometimes it moves pretty slow. And you ought to be glad it does, because you might need some time to acclimate yourself to what it's doing and working on you. But it's quick in the sense that it's alive. It's alive. And that is a very important thing. It's powerful in its effects on the heart and mind. If it was not alive, it wouldn't have the kind of effects on the heart and mind that it has. But the fact that it's alive means it's full of power and energy, and it's capable of making changes in us, and that's precisely what God's intent is. Unlike any other weapon, it's so spiritually sharp that it can divide between the soul and the spirit, the spiritual joints and the marrow, and it can even divinely discern between the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And it goes on to say in that passage that nothing can be hidden from its sight. The one whose word it is is who you're not being hidden from. But nothing can be hidden from its sight and its insight, and nothing can be carnally protected from its surgical, separative sharpness. It'll reveal what's true in every sense. That's one of the most important, deeper layers to what that verse means. That I'm still talking about Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. What that passage means in Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 is that it'll reveal the reality. There's a lot of times we put on a surface covering, you know. We put on a certain presentation to other people, or maybe we even put it on to ourselves. The worst deception is self-deception, you know. At least the worst deception for you personally. It's not the worst for other people. If you deceive them, that's the worst for them. But the worst deception for you is self-deception. And sometimes we deceive ourselves, but the Word of God can separate between what is real and what you've deceived yourself about. It can separate between what is real about a number of things, not only in terms of truth, like maybe you've deceived yourself into believing something that's true that's not, and it can separate between the truth and untruth, but it also separates between true motives, the true person that you are, and who you appear to be. That's why I think it's talking about the soul and the spirit. 
The word spirit is very difficult to discern what it's talking about unless you're very strict with the context it's found in, because sometimes the word spirit can be referring to God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the word spirit can be referring to the life that's within a person. This spirit left their body. It's not talking necessarily about the fact they were filled with the Holy Ghost and they lost the Holy Ghost. It's talking about the fact that there was some element of the life-giving spirit of God that was animating that person. And when they died, that spirit left their body. There's, by the way, no scripture in the Bible anywhere that ever says the soul leaves the body. It never, ever divides between the soul and the body in some way that a soul could exist without a body. Not one passage in the Bible. Every passage that people think says that actually says the spirit will go back to the one who gave it, or the spirit left the body. It never says the soul, which is very significant because there has been a whole ideology created, a whole theology in various different tracks that it's taken surrounding the idea of the immortality of the soul. The soul lives on after the body, but there's not a single verse in the Bible that says any such thing. It talks about the person potentially living after the body dies, But they'd have to have another body to do it because you don't live in some kind of ephemeral state, at least not according to the Bible. There's no place that says anything like that. But your spirit can leave. And people sometimes confuse the spirit with the soul. The spirit is that life-giving force that was in you, that animated you, that allowed you to be alive. And it's just like God drawing his breath back into himself. So when his breath goes back to him, whatever breath was animating you, poetically speaking, is gone and you're dead. There's nothing there to animate your body anymore, nothing there to keep your heart pumping and keep your blood flowing, keep the neurons and things in your brain firing and everything else. How would you describe the soul? The soul is the person. All through the Bible, when it talks about people being killed, it says, here's a living soul, there's a dead soul. Somebody got killed is a dead soul. It's just the person. It's you. You are a living soul if you're alive. You're a dead soul if you're dead. Your soul is the deepest expression of your identity, if you want the simplest explanation I can give, but that's not a big enough explanation. That's just my simplest answer. It's the deepest expression of your identity. Now, why do you think I said deepest? Because a moment ago, I just told you, some people put on a certain spirit. This is a different way the word spirit's used. Spirit can be the Spirit of God. Spirit can be that animating force that was in man that is God's breath, so to speak, that he withdraws, you know, and all man would cease to exist. Spirit can also be disposition, your disposition. That's why we say about somebody they have a good spirit. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're talking about God's spirit when we say that. It's their spirit, their disposition. Well, you can put on a good disposition and not necessarily be a good person. I've known some folks that for a long time convinced me, thank God nobody in our assembly, but I've known people in the business world especially for a long time convinced me they were good folks. They really cared about me. And then somewhere along the line, they stabbed me in the back or betrayed me in some way or did something that was very harsh. And it just shocks your system because you're thinking all the information I have from interacting with this person gave me the impression they were a good person, that they were my friend, that they liked me, whatever other terms you want to use. But that wasn't really who they were. They were putting that on. It was like a cloak they put on. And their interactions with you were like a cloak that they put on. Sometimes your spirit, when it's talking about your disposition, somebody can put on a certain kind of disposition and they might look like they really got it together. But if you knew what they were like at the soul level, so in some senses, when it talks about the word of God dividing between the soul and spirit, it's making the distinction between who you really are and what you look like you are, what it feels like you are when another human's around you. God can see on past your surface, right down to who you really are. And another way of defining the soul, though this is extremely oversimplistic, is it's who you really are. 
Your soul is who you really are, but it is your deepest expression of your identity. It constitutes everything that goes into making you a unique individual. That's why every soul is different, just like every person is different. Because the experiences we all go through, the types of personalities we have, all the things that go into making you who you are is your soul. That's you. But it's you at the deepest and truest level. And sometimes we don't even understand who we are at the soul level. We've deceived ourselves or we've convinced ourselves of something. I knew a number of people like this in a martial and military type background who were convinced they were fearless and tough and everything else. Once you got them into the right environment where they were truly tested, they had deceived themselves into thinking, I'll never turn back. I'll never make a run for it, so to speak. There's nothing that I won't stand against. And they get put in a certain environment and you find out they're running for the hills and you're thinking, this is the tough guy who I'll never, you know, it's kind of like statements that Peter made to Jesus about how I'll never turn on you. Even cut a man's ear off trying to prove his courage and boldness and that I'm going to defend you, Lord. Nobody's going to take you. I'll cut their ear right off. And he did. But you notice it wasn't long after that that Peter was hiding from a little girl because she was saying he was one of those disciples of Jesus. He saw what was happening to Jesus and the reality of what was happening. Maybe in his earlier part of Jesus' ministry, he might have been thinking, nobody could take Jesus captive. Look at all the miracles he's done. And nobody could ever hurt me. Maybe even subconsciously he's thinking this, because as long as they close to Jesus, nobody can touch me, because who could touch him? But once you see Jesus taken and abused and beaten, then it had to have terrified Peter, where he might have started doubting about, this isn't what I was expecting. I was expecting, potentially that he was going to become the king of Israel and that nobody was going to be able to stop him. And now they're taking him. It looks like they're going to kill him. And it totally undermined Peter's faith because of one simple thing. Peter didn't know enough. It's not just knowledge, by the way. He didn't have enough knowledge, wisdom, and understanding about the purpose of Christ and the role of Christ, or he wouldn't have been thrown off by what happened. If he would have understood that Isaiah 53 was talking about Jesus and that he was intended to be taken in this way and abused and killed even, he may not have lost his faith momentarily. He may not have chickened out, as we say, when he was being accused of being one of Jesus' disciples. But he didn't have enough knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but he didn't know enough about what the Messiah was. As powerful as Peter's statement in Matthew 16 was about how you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, He didn't understand what the role of Christ was, what the role of the Messiah was. So he was excited about the fact that he was the Messiah, but he didn't know enough of Scripture and have enough knowledge of the Scripture, and not just knowledge of quoting it, but understanding of what it meant to be able to understand what it meant that Jesus was the Messiah, that in his first coming, he was going to have to suffer. He wasn't coming to rule and reign in his first coming. And I don't think the disciples that followed Jesus understood that. Some people think that's why Judas betrayed him, is because Judas came to that conclusion. Maybe he was more cynical than the rest, and he came to that conclusion maybe a little faster than the others did and started to realize this isn't going to turn out the way I want it to. I want him to be the king, and I'll be some great, powerful person in his court. And it doesn't look like it's going that direction, and thus he betrayed him. I'd like to ask another question. Uh When it says, if they that have not the Spirit of Christ are none of his now, what spirit is that? Some people think it's just his nature, his personality. Brother Lee asked, if you didn't hear him, what does it mean when it says, they that do not have the spirit of Christ are none of his, Paul's statement. I think there's two layers of that, Brother Lee. Both of them are going to be true. Number one, you have to have the Holy Spirit. But if you don't eventually get Christ's disposition and character, you're not going to be one of his in eternity. 
You're not one of His in the present, in the fullest sense, if you don't have the Holy Spirit. You can be His in a limited sense without the Holy Spirit by conversion. But in a fuller sense, you aren't His in the present without the Holy Spirit because you have to be adopted and empowered by the Spirit. But if the Spirit doesn't finish its work in you and create His Spirit in you, see, there's two different ways I'm using the Spirit. If the Spirit of God that is in Christ and in you does not transform you into having the same type of Spirit, lowercase s, disposition, that Jesus has, you're not going to be recognizable as one of His, which means there's two stages of that. If you don't receive the Holy Spirit, you certainly aren't going to be able to be one of His. But even if you do receive the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit doesn't do its perfect work in you and develop you into the place where you have the Spirit of Christ in terms of your thoughts and attitude and actions, you're not going to be one of His either. Even if He did deliver you from your past and He was your Savior, if you don't take on Christ, if you don't become a reflection, if you don't develop the image of Christ, there is the image of God and there's image of Christ. Now, the image of Christ is synonymous with the image of God because spiritually, they look exactly alike. That's why people get so confused about their identities, because spiritually, they look exactly alike. That's why Jesus said that when you see me, you see the Father. Because when you're seeing him, you're seeing the personality of God. You're seeing exactly what God would say and do. You want to know what God would say or do in a situation? All you have to do is look at Jesus, because Jesus is a perfect reflection of his Father. He is the express image of the Father. We are to be recreated into the image of Christ. So if we're recreated into the image of Christ by the Spirit, from glory to glory, that means we'll have to be just like He was, a perfect reflection of the image of God. Because the image of Christ equates to the image of God. So when you see Jesus, you're seeing what God's character and morality and other things are, His personality even to a great degree. And thus, we have to take on those same qualities. And if we take on Christ's qualities, we'll be taking on the qualities of God. I'm not talking about his qualities of being omniscient or omnipotent or omnipresent. I'm talking about his qualities of character. Jesus doesn't have all the same roles and responsibility and to some measure even exercise of power that God the Father has. But he has what God's given him. But in terms of his disposition and character, he is a perfect reflection. That's what an express image is. It's a perfect reflection. It's the type of thing where you take the reality. This is where the word comes from, by the way. You take something real like a signet ring. It's a real thing. It has a real image on it. And you press it into the wax. And what is left is an express image. It's the perfect replica of what you just impressed into that wax or whatever else it might be. So God's personality has been fully impressed into his son, Jesus. And it's got to be fully impressed into us. And so thus, you could see two layers of that statement, Brother Stevens. One, you really can't say that you're one of his if you haven't been adopted into his household by the Holy Spirit baptism. You can be his in the sense that he's delivered you as a savior, but you're not really part of his family in a full sense, just in a very nominal sense until you're truly adopted by the Spirit. But then once you're adopted by the Spirit, the purpose of the Spirit adopting you is not just a one-time event any more than conversion is just a one-time event. We are continually being converted, whether you realize it or not. Conversion is not a one-time event. It's a lifelong event. We've got to keep turning and turning and turning until we never turn back, until we just keep going in the right direction and never turn from that right direction. That's what conversion is, a turning. Holy Spirit baptism is the same thing. It's not a one-time end-all, be-all event where you're filled with the Holy Spirit, so you're all set, no problem. No, it's the beginning of something, just like conversion is. It's the beginning of the work of the Spirit in your life to conform you to the image of Christ. And eventually, we'll all be conformed to the image of Christ. We're going to live throughout eternity. So coming back to this issue about the soul and the spirit, 
Sometimes the word spirit with a capital S, well, you have to decide if it's got a capital S because Hebrew and ancient Greek didn't have capital letters or lowercase letters that differentiate. So you have to look at the context. If it says the Spirit of God, that makes it easy for you because the capital S Spirit of God is the same thing as the lowercase s Spirit of God. Do you understand? God's Spirit that sometimes He reaches out with in power and with His presence is His personality as well. It's a package of things that are part of God. But the capital S Spirit of God is a little different than the Spirit that's in us that is our disposition. So there's different ways that the word Spirit is used in the Bible, and you have to be careful, look at the context, and determine what it is. Here in Hebrews 4, I think what is being said is not that there's a separation between your soul and God's Spirit. Why would the Word of God do that? Why would the Word of God separate your soul and God's Spirit? What's happening in Hebrews 4 is a separation between your soul and your spirit. Your soul, again, being the deepest expression of your identity and your spirit being that more surface level. Sometimes your spirit and your soul are perfect reflections of one another. In other words, who you are inside is what people are feeling and what they're seeing. They feel your spirit and they feel something sweet and it's who you are at the deepest level. Sometimes it's not. But the Word of God has the capability to distinguish and differentiate between who you really are and who you appear to be. And again, you can deceive yourself into thinking you're something. I was in a situation with somebody in a... I want to get into all the details of this for a whole variety of reasons, but I was in a situation where we had to be outside in a very extremely cold winter weather type environment that was training related. And this individual is one of the toughest people I've ever seen in most environments. And he talked tough all the time, you know, kind of like I said about Peter, he talked tough all the time. I don't care about pain. I don't care about this. I don't care about that. And I can still remember when those temperatures dropped well down below zero and we were outside and it was very intentional. We had no way to get out of the situation we were in except to survive it. That was the training. We had what amounted to a small shelter. He got curled up in a ball in that shelter. He wouldn't come out. He wouldn't help us with any of the things we were supposed to be doing. It was part of our task that we had to do. And he's a big, brawny, muscular guy. And it was embarrassing for him. It was embarrassing for me to look at it because in every other environment, he was tough. Now, I didn't feel any tougher. I was miserable too. It was bitterly cold. I wondered if I was going to live through the experience. But I wasn't going to curl up in a ball and cry about it. Well, this big guy curled up in a ball and cried and wouldn't come out of the shelter. And the well, shelter wasn't much warmer, but he wouldn't come out of the shelter. And I thought to myself, who he has been putting on that he is this whole time is not who he really is. Perhaps he deceived himself. Maybe he really thought, I'm this tough. But he hadn't been tested yet, see? When you're tested, you'll find out. That's one thing I treasure. This is going to sound very strange, but it's one thing I treasure about this cancer that the Lord has allowed me to have. And maybe the Lord is going through the process of taking out of my body through some of these surgeries or anything other means he wants to use. I treasure that it has tested me. And in the test of my faith, I am still standing strong. I have not shuddered under the weight of this stage four cancer. I have not lost my faith. I haven't lost my strength in terms of my spiritual strength. I've lost physical strength under some of the process, and that'll come back if the Lord is willing to bring me fully through this. But I've lost none of my spiritual strength. In fact, I feel stronger spiritually because when you've been tested by certain things and you realize that you are able to pass that test, I can do this, that adds tremendous inner strength. Because then if there's something that is less than that, that you might have thought was really difficult, it's going to seem like nothing at all in comparison. What is harder than death? 
What's harder than the suffering that goes along with the process of a terminal disease? There's really not very many things other than suffering in emotional ways with other people's suffering. So those tests can be extremely valuable for us to realize who we really are. And if we're not who we thought we were, we need to find that out so we can make the corrections to be who we want to be. To be who we're called to be is more important who we want to be, unless who we want to be is who we're called to be. If who you want to be is not who you're called to be, then that needs to be corrected before you correct anything else, because you'll be trying to be something you're not even called to be, and that'll be a serious mess down the road. But if who you're called to be and who you want to be are synonymous, then testing you is going to do nothing but be positive in its nature, educational in its nature, because you're going to find out, am I strong enough to make it through this? If I'm not, what adjustments do I need to make so I will be strong enough? Not everybody is strong enough to get hit with certain things. There's different things that can hit us that could just take your legs right out from underneath you, and you won't be able to get back up. You're going to need help to get back up. But at least then we recognize this is my area of weakness. I've got to get this shored up. I've got to get that dealt with. I've got to be stronger in these areas and develop the muscle I need spiritually and emotionally, perhaps even intellectually, that I need to be able to get through some of these things. Intellectually might seem strange, but it's not because sometimes what we need more than anything else is to know more about God, to have more knowledge than we have. One of the things that has given me the confidence I have in the midst of the crisis I'm in is the knowledge I have of God. I know a good deal about God. I don't mean that in an arrogant way. What I know about God is a tiny grain of sand compared to what there is to know about Him on a big beach. But I know enough about God that it gives me confidence in what God is doing. I know how God operates. I know how He works. I have been a student of His Word and of His ways for a long time. And I have been a dedicated student of His Word and of His ways. And when you really study God, you get to understand how He works. You're not going to understand everything about God. Who can, by searching, find out God? None of us. I'm going to tell you, search all you want. You're not going to find Him out. But He can reveal things to you especially if he sees that you're interested and you care and you're dedicated in your study. He'll reveal deeper things to you. And the things he's revealed to me about himself through the many years of study that I've made and the dedication I've given to that study has given me confidence. I have a knowledge that shores up some of my emotions. Your emotions can get carried away when you get hit with something, especially when you're not expecting it. But your knowledge can shore up your emotions. I know enough about God to understand Other people have been through these kind of things too. God has let some terrible things happen, but he knows what he's doing. It always turns out for the best if you hold on to your relationship with him. And that's just a simple understanding of him. But getting into the depth of how he works, you start to learn more and more about his personality and his ways. And his ways are important to understand. It is a glorious thing to know about the works of God, to know what he's done. You know, we get excited when we hear about things like the parting of the Red Sea, the parting of the Jordan. We hear about the plagues of Egypt, or we hear about the walls of Jericho coming down, or much later, hundreds of years later, almost a thousand years later, almost, not quite, but more than 800 or 900 years later, when you're hearing about the three Hebrew men that went into the furnace and came out without a smell of smoke in their clothes, not even a singed garment. You hear about Daniel, went into a den full of starving lions and came out, those lions hadn't touched him. Those are things that are powerful, but those are the works of God. We need to understand the ways of God. The works of God are so encouraging and so uplifting, but we don't want to just know the works of God, just like what was said about Moses. It says the children of Israel saw and had some comprehension of God's works, but they didn't understand his ways like Moses did. Moses had come to understand the methodology God uses, his ways. 
And I've come to know some of his ways enough to know that I may not appreciate his ways in terms of enjoying them all the time. His ways are pretty rough sometimes. But I know they're his ways. And if they're his ways, and I also know the kind of God he is in terms of his character, then I can endure the ways that he takes me, all the ways that he might take me, negative or positive, because I have confidence in who he is, not just what he's doing. I have confidence in who he is, which will determine whether or not what he's doing is positive in its end result. So let's move forward with talking here in this verse. Got us a little bit off track, but it's a deep verse. You get into Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, you could preach a couple sermons on it and teach a few Bible studies, and you still wouldn't necessarily hit side or bottom of that subject. Could be that this is talking about God revealing the true inner man versus the outward display that's his disposition or presentation of himself. It could be that it's talking about the fact the Word of God is able to separate the soul from life. That'd be a deeper way of looking at it too, separate the soul from the spirit, because the person, if they're separated from the spirit, ceases to live. The Word of God is the judgment stick, you realize. If it judges you unworthy, it'll separate your soul from your spirit, and you'll be a dead soul, because any living being whose life is taken from them is now a dead soul, a dead being. If you want to have another definition for the word soul, this isn't helpful because you'd have to define this word, and it's a real hard one to define at times. The soul is a being, B-E-I-N-G. A living soul is a living being. A dead soul is a dead being. It's no more complicated than that. You can find it all through the Bible where it talks about dead souls and living souls. You just don't always see it in the English translations, and you don't see it very often, only a couple of times really in the King James that it even alludes to that language. But if you looked at the Hebrew that's underneath those words, they chose to translate it many times. The word soul is bodies or people, like a battle happened. It said there were a whole bunch of dead souls. They should have translated it that way, but their theology wouldn't allow it because there can't be any dead souls. Souls are immortal. So in other words, we have to say dead bodies. That's not the Hebrew word for body. It's the Hebrew word for soul. But they could not translate it that way. Their brain would not function to do that because of their theological bias that they had. I said God's spirit, the breath of life, is the spirit that's within man. There's a reason I'm going into this, by the way, because this is part of the work of the sword of the spirit. And that's important for us to understand what the sword of the spirit's work is. It can separate the soul and the spirit. It can separate them in the sense of judgment, literally separating the living being from life, or it can separate in the sense of differentiating between reality and put on, so to speak, between surface and between the true inner reality of something. But it is important to understand the nature of the fact that we have a spirit that is within us that is removed from us at death. Job 33, 4, where it says, The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. That's the reason we're alive right now. There's no person on this earth. There's no creature in this universe that's alive other than at the whim of God. It is God's will that he allows some measure of his spirit to be within that vessel of that body of an animal or a person or whatever the case might be. You realize animals are called living souls? That's one of the things people seem to miss in the Bible too. They get this idea about what a soul is and get real carried away with it and then somehow miss the fact that the word nefesh that means soul is used for animals too. Animals are called souls. Job 34, 14 to 15 says, If he set his heart upon man, if he gather unto himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh shall perish together, and man shall turn again to the dust. That's God's spirit that's animating the creation. Again, I want you to understand, I'm talking about several different things here. One of them is the work of the Word of God to differentiate between who you are and who you're putting on to be. That could be one layer. 
Another one is the work of the Word of God that is going to determine whether or not your soul is going to continue to have life or not. Whether or not you're going to be a living soul or whether or not you're going to eventually be a dead soul. Psalms 104, 29 to 30 says, Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die, and return to their dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. Just to get another example of this language. Coming back to the core subject, though, of the sword of the spirit, this word makaira that we see translated sword in Ephesians 6.17 is also used in Romans 13.4, where it could carry a literal or a figurative meaning, depending on whether it's being used to refer to a civil leader that's bearing the sword, meaning a sword of potential judgment in a negative sense that he could kill those who break the law, or whether it's referring to a minister bearing the sword of God's word. I lean pretty heavily towards this referring to ministers. It says minister in there, but that just means a servant. I believe that this passage is talking about the ministry. There are several reasons I've given you before, so I won't go into them in detail here. But Romans 13, 4 says, For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. By the way, that's one reason I think this is likely to be referring to a religious minister rather than a civil leader, because there's many civil leaders that their laws that they pass are actually in opposition to God, which means if they are going to punish you with the sword, so to speak, for breaking the law, they certainly aren't a minister of God in doing it. In fact, many of the civil leaders have passed many laws, and they're doing it even in our nation now, that are going to cross your conscience if you're a person that has a biblical conscience, a spirit-driven conscience. And so you couldn't argue that just because somebody is a civil leader, and there are theologians that teach this very thing. Romans 13 is just talking about civil leaders. You're supposed to have respect for civil leaders because they have the power to potentially judge you and even execute you. And so be careful. But civil leaders are almost never a good example unless they're godly leaders of people that are God's ministers, that are ministering God's justice. That would far better apply to the ministry. And I've given you other reasons for that before. So as I said, I'm not going to go into that. But notice that it's the sword. He beareth not the sword in vain, for he's the minister of God. And notice what the purpose of the sword is in this passage. Not that it always has this purpose. The sword of the Spirit is an instrument, as I said, of redemption. It can cut people's chains off of them. It can cut away the things that are carnal in a person that will cause them to go on to their death so that they can go on to life with the Lord. But it also can be what is described here, an instrument of vengeance, meaning that somebody has continued to resist God and God's will, and the Word of God is what will end up judging that person. said, He hewed them by the prophets, and He slew them by the words of His mouth. And if you're going to stand against the Word of God, it's like an axe coming at you. It'll cut you down like a tree gets cut down. It'll cut you down at the root. You're not coming back either. But if you stand for the Word of God, then the things that are holding you back, the things that are tying you down to this world are what will get cut away. So God's Word is certainly an instrument of judgment. It can bring corrective or even destructive judgment, or it can bring redemptive judgment. But notice in Romans 13 that it is referred to in an offensive context rather than a defensive context. Machaira is also used, this word for sword, three times in the book of Revelation all of them referring to the Word of God. In Revelation 6, 4, it describes the great sword. It's held by the rider of the red horse. Now, though that is the Word of God, it's being used in a corrupt and an evil way. That church had the Word of God, but they used it to abuse the people, and they twisted it and perverted it in ways that destroyed the people's souls. 
In Revelation 13, 10, it takes that misuse of the Word of God to its corrective and destructive end when it says that the leaders of the false church that kill us with the sword, they use the Word of God as their basis for ruling and bringing the destructive judgments that they did on the people who resisted them, under destructive judgment themselves by the Word of God. Those that kill by the sword must be killed by the sword. They use the Word of God to persecute and to destroy people's lives. They're going to be destroyed by it. Revelation 13, 14, just four verses later, it refers to the sword of the Word of God that wounded the beastly power during the period of the Reformation and afterward. So you see how this word is used in some symbolic passages for the Word of God, whether it being used the right way or the wrong way. That parallel Greek word for a sword, ramphia, that I mentioned, also refers to the Word of God in symbolic passages. And it's nearly always, if not always, used in that way in the Bible. It's almost never used, if it's ever used, for a literal sword, that word. It's almost always used in symbolic ways. The only example I can think of that might use it differently is Luke 2.35, though I think even there it's intended symbolically when the statement is made to Mary, the mother of Jesus, that a sword shall pierce thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, I don't think that's talking about a literal sword piercing her. That's talking about the emotional anguish that she would experience because in part of the suffering role that her son Jesus is going to have to go through. She was going to have a son, but her soul was going to be pierced, having to suffer with him through what he was going to have to suffer through. On a deeper level, and you know some folks are always looking for something a little deeper, and it's possible you might find something deeper in even that statement. It could be, on a very deep level, also reference the Word of God, since it was the Word of God that prophesied that Jesus would have to go through this suffering. So even on that level, the sword of the Word of God was what was going to injure Mary because the prophecies about Jesus' suffering were going to come to pass. So no matter how you want to look at it, that would be true. In all but one of the six uses of the Greek word ramphia in Revelation, it's describing the sword of the Word of God that goes forth from the mouth of Christ. In 116 and 212 and 216 and 1915 and 1921, those were all describing that sword that comes forth from the mouth of Christ, that he had a sword that came forth from his mouth. The only exception in Revelation is in Revelation 6.8, where like Machaira was used for the sword of the red horse rider, it refers to the killing power of the sword that's held by the rider of the pale horse. That's the only New Testament example where it might refer to a literal instrument of death because it's certainly true that rider of the pale horse was executing and murdering a number of people. Many martyrs fell under that pale horse dispensation. But I think even that has a symbolic connotation, that it was the Word of God that they used as their justification for the murdering they were doing and for the abuse of power that they carried out. Maybe a twisting of the Word? Oh yes, a twisting of the Word of God, Brother Costa. That's absolutely right. Paul refers to the Word of God as the sword of the Spirit here in Ephesians 6.17 because the written and even the spoken Word of God is the creation of the Spirit. It's not that the sword is the Spirit. I've heard some commentators argue that this is the sword of the Spirit. So this sword is the Spirit. It defines it in the second statement, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The reason it's called the sword of the Spirit is because the Spirit is its origin. The Spirit is where it comes from. It's the sword that the Spirit uses, so to speak, the sword that the Spirit inspired. And it's the Spirit inspires it not only in its original sense, in terms of the fact that the Spirit inspired the writings of this book, this Scripture, but it also inspires it even when it's preached or taught or quoted. When the Spirit touches and anoints an individual and the anointing that comes on somebody that's preaching it is a secondary anointing, you might say, 
Because the Spirit already anointed the Word, the Spirit already inspired the Word, created it, produced it, but now it's reinforcing it by anointing it. And sometimes the anointing of the Word of God that occurs in that secondary way when someone's preaching it is just as powerful as what it took to produce it on the page. Just as powerful of a feeling and perhaps even a greater feeling than even the original inspiration that produced it. I'll give you a simple reason for that. Imagine what some of those prophets felt. I'll bet it was a powerful feeling when the Spirit of God came on them and they got that inspiration to write those words. But do you realize there's going to be a day when, and you see it all through Revelation, these mentions, these angels that are preaching messages and things. Sometimes those angels preaching those messages are a ministry. They're not just a celestial angel. That angel that flies in the midst of heaven may very well be a ministry. Those seven thunders that utter their voices in Revelation 10 very likely could be seven great apostles or great leaders in the latter rain period. They're going to have a great message that's going to go forth at the end. Those are all powerful expressions of the anointing of the Word of God. And I think that when some of the messages are preached that reveal the truth of what some of these prophecies and things in the Scriptures mean at their deepest level, when that message goes forth, the anointing on that message may be just as powerful, if not more powerful, than the anointing the prophet God who wrote the message originally down. Because they didn't understand everything they were writing sometimes. Imagine when somebody has the full comprehension of it and they're quoting those words that prophet wrote under the anointing of the Spirit of God and the truth flows out at its deepest level and its deepest meaning, clear as crystal. It'll be a more powerful anointing than even what the prophet received who got it originally. I'll give you a few verses that'll go along with that. Second Peter 1.21 says, The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And holy men of God are speaking right now as they're moved by the Holy Ghost. They're not speaking necessarily to create new scriptures, but they're speaking to give greater understanding on the scriptures that were already given in that original inspiration. 1 Peter 1.11 says, Searching what or what manner of time, this is what the prophets and the great men of God in the Old Testament were doing, they were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify. The Spirit entered them long enough to inspire them to get that information, but they didn't know it all yet. They didn't understand it all yet. They didn't know what time or what manner some of these things were going to happen when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And one more I'll give you in the Old Testament, and I'll be giving you a New Testament one, 2 Samuel 23.2. says, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. What a powerful thing that would be, that you consciously understood the Spirit of the Lord was speaking through me. His word was in my tongue. That's exactly what happens when a man of God is anointed, even today, after the word of God's already been written down on the pages. When the word of God comes alive in the mouth of a prophet or a teacher or some minister or man of God or woman of God, for that matter, that is expressing the word of God under an anointing, it is just as powerful today, and I'm going to say this again, if not more powerful than it was when it was first given. Now think about that. Think how powerful it was that God wrote his own words, word for word in the minds of these individuals, and yet we can repeat them under the unction of the Holy Spirit, and there's greater power in their repetition in preaching and teaching when the anointing is behind it than there even was when it was originally given. So the Word of God was not only produced by the Spirit as its origin, it's anointed by the Spirit in its preaching and teaching today. Its origin was divine, and the ongoing communication of it is divinely empowered as well. 
God's anointing of preaching, teaching, or even simply reading of His Word is just as powerful in its effects today as was the original inspiration that produced it if the Spirit is present.